This is an AMI podcast. It doesn't matter that there are oppositional forces at work, because what's really important about the danger of the single story in this instance, I think, is that blindness means something. You know, that blindness is not a lived experience, but it is somehow symbolically important. And I think that that's probably been the biggest issue that we as blind people face is that we walk down the street and we're not just people living our lives, we're people that are like laden with metaphor. Welcome to Triple Vision. I'm David Best, and this is episode 28. We are continuing our exploration of the danger of a single-story narrative with Dr. Leona Godin as our guest and interviewed by Peter Field and Hannah Levitt of the Triple Vision team. Dr. Godin, who began losing her vision at the age of 10, received her PhD from NYU in early modern literature. She is a writer, performer, and educator, and she is the author of the book, Their Plant Eyes, a personal and cultural history of blindness. Yeah, as you said, David, um, we're continuing our exploration of the danger of the single story, and with us is uh, Dr. Leona Godin, um, who's written a book called Their Plant Eyes, and we'll get her to tell us all about that in a minute, but I just want to bring our co-host here, Hannah. How, Hannah, how are you doing today? I'm just great, Peter. Thanks. Great. So, we'll... And I'd also like to welcome Leona to the show as well. Thank you, yeah. Hannah. It's great to be here. So, Leona, as you've heard, we're starting to explore in this new season of Triple Vision the idea of the danger of a single story and what happens when a single story is told by uh, a person even or a group of people uh, by someone else. And um, you and I have chatted a bit over email, and it seems that you've you've spent a lot of time studying this and looking at this, and and I think pushing back against this. So, can you tell us, in your opinion, you know, what's the danger of a single story when it comes to the community of people who are blind, deafblind, partially sighted, and how do we fix that? Yeah, thank you. I, I mean, there's obviously so much to say about it. I think the most the most obvious thing that I'm pushing back on in my book is that the story of blindness in our literature, in our media, in our films, and even from a journalistic perspective, has almost exclusively been told by sighted people. And mm. and that is the number one big issue, because I think that the, the ideas that sighted people have about blind people are they just don't uh, make any sense in terms of our own lived experience. And um, one of the things that I pay a lot of attention to in my book is kind of a tension of, there are actually kind of two oppositional forces going on in those kinds of stories that tend to be told by sighted people. And that is kind of the the blind poet prophet. Uh, and now we have the superhero mm. kind of on one end of the extreme. And the other end of the extreme is sort of the pitiable blind beggar buffoon. Um, mm. And so the the vast mill ground, which is where most of us live, you know, just like working yeah. and being parents and just going about our daily lives is basically not told, um, I think, in, in our media and our literature. So, Leona, what motivated you to look into this a little bit more? Like, is it, did you have a, a really personal sort of curiosity about it and how that story applied to you? 
Absolutely. I mean, in some ways, this book is kind of a culmination of like 20 years of um, personal story and then also looking at the idea of blindness um, from kind of a cultural perspective as both an artist and an academic. So I can say that, you know, I've kind of lived on every notch of the sight blindness continuum. I started out life with normal vision. It went blind super, super slowly over the decades and am now a totally blind person. And so, of course, that's the other thing that's not usually told by sighted people, right? It, it tends to be kind of the binary. You're either blind or you're sighted, right? And there's no in-between, which we all know, I think, um, that the in-between is the vast majority of us, you know, having some sight um, living somewhere on that kind of continuum. So the, the book is kind of an expression of the ways that I've grappled with uh, dealing with the difference between that lived experience and what I find in in literature, in representations, in the media, and journalistic representations as well, and kind of pushing back and, and um, really complicating it. Because, because that's the other problem with the, the single story, is that when you're telling a story from the outside perspective, it tends to be flattened and simplified. Um, and I think we are all guilty of that, right? What we don't know seems quite simple from the outside. And to recognize that, I think, is the most important thing that all humans can do, right? Because we all have this feeling that like our lives, our people, our family are really complicated. And those people that we don't know very much about are sort of flattened and simplified. And, and so pushing back on that because there are less blind people in the world, right? And so we tend to be kind of mm. viewed as monolithic on a certain level. I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm curious about how you're going to answer this. Why have we not, I would say until now, been in the position to tell our own mm. story? What's happened there? That is such a good question. You know, some of it is practical and some of it is cultural. Um, I'm going to say one side of it is that for for right now, we are in a really exciting time. I mean, there's no doubt that technology has been a game changer for a lot of blind people. And to be connected, I'll just say for, on a personal level, as a writer, right? Mm -hmm. um, 20 years ago, when I wanted to, to be a writer, to access the most contemporary sort of up-to-date literature and articles was really difficult, you know, to, to be kind mm -hmm. of in the game, right? To be involved in the literary community is really hard when all you're getting are books on tape that were, you know, they came out two years earlier, right? It's really hard to sort mm -hmm. of be involved in that way. And I think that's true across the board, right? I mean, I think that we could say similar things about film and access to, to audio description and, and, but for me, it's all about books and to be able to read a, mm -hmm. a, an article in the New York Times, a review of a book that just came out and to be able to access it on Kindle immediately is just a game changer mm -hmm. in terms of my ability to be a part of a literary community. And I think that that disconnect of how few books were available to us made it hard for, say, a, a somebody who wanted to be a novelist or to write serious nonfiction to be in, in, involved and to be able to start um, creating our own stories based not on things that are, you know, 200 years old or even three years old, but really being up, up to date. So I think that's, that's part of it. 
And then, of course, there's the stigma is the other side of it, right? The, the mm. idea that um, blind people are not really capable of talking about anything other than their own experience, um, I think, has made it, made it be that we're only sort of allowed to tell our memoir. And there's another mm -hmm. kind of single story, right? The problem of the memoir. Now, I, I mean, I love... I love blind memoirs. I quote many of them in my book. Um, but I think it is a, a danger when that's sort of all that the publishing industry and that the reading public tends to want from blind people is sort of a one-off and dare we say sort of inspirational, inspiration porn type story. Mm. Um, and that's kind of another kind of single story that I think has been keeping us from being able to write novels and, and create characters that are sort of not just our own story, but but deal with larger yeah. issues. Really, your book, Their Plant Eyes, as you said, is, is about the single story and takes us back centuries. Can you just give us a really quick summary of some of those some of those highlights through the the ages and, and you know the periods that you've covered where these single stories have been told? I started. It's sort of Western culture, right? So it's it's this uh, very humble project of basically blindness in our cultural imagination for about two and a half centuries. So I kind of start at the beginning of um, sort of Western literature with Homer, because of course at the very beginnings of what we think of as Western literature, we have a blind character, right? And I say blind character because nobody really knows if, if Homer was actually blind or not. But it's, for whatever reason, it's an attractive story um, that has followed us for these 2,000 years. And I, I think it's one of those baseline ironies of this idea of the single story. The problem that we, we like the idea of a blind poet, and I will add to that, like the blind poet prophet, right? Tiresias is also mm -hmm. a very old myth. But we don't think about what, makes it possible for there to be such a thing as a blind poet. And, and like I said, technology is so important to us today. But back in the days of Homer, there would be the possibility of a blind poet because it was an oral poetry, right? It was an oral tradition um, that gave rise to the po possibility of having your major literary figure be blind because they didn't need to have print access. Um, and so I think that that's one of the driving forces in this book is the idea that the practicalities do not support the idea of the great blind people and that it's actually been a real difficulty because if you're not sort of a genius on the level of, say, the idea of a, of a Homer, but later on a, a John Milton, um, who wrote Paradise Lost, who, who gave me the title of my book, um, it's been very difficult to gain access to the tools of the trade, right, to be a, a blind writer. So I kind of drop down into these moments where these ironies arise. And I will say that even... Back in the old days, back back in ancient times, people were skeptical of the idea of a blind poet. So I even start out chapter one with a quote from a from an historian in the early days, first century uh, of our common era, and basically saying there's no way that Homer could have been blind because he saw more than all Greece besides. So 
even as we have these ideas of the great blind poet prophet, we have a lot of skepticism. I mean, I think that that comes to us as well to this very day, right? We have this whole truther movement, right? Where people don't believe that there's such, that, that Helen Keller could have written books, you know, they don't mm. believe that Stevie Wonder was actually blind. And so that that's the other side of it. And so I kind of dip down into those, those ironies through the years and, and also how connected our histories are. So for example, I am very interested kind of in the middle of the book in how the creation of schools for the blind and, and Braille, um, were very much connected with the idea of enlightenment and came right out of sort of ideas that were very near and dear to the philosophers of the 18th century. So, so those are kind of two lines of, of trajectory through, through the centuries, um, how blindness has kind of helped to shape our, our imagination and how the education of the blind has also been sort of in tandem with these larger ideas. In your book, did you explore, you mentioned the philosophers, I was thinking about people like John Locke and, mm-hmm. and like the religions of the world that created a single story for blind people mm-hmm. as well? I'm so glad you that know? you mentioned that, Hannah, because I do spend quite a bit of time thinking about, um, in particular, again, because this is not so much a, a global history, because I, that would have just, it would have been too much. It's already quite a long book. Um and I really hope that other people will do similar things with traditions around the world and how uh, how blindness has been kind of shaped and it is shaped by um, other cultures. But I will say that in the Western tradition, um, especially kind of the Christian trope has two sides to it. I would say there's the single story insofar as um, blindness's punishment has been a, a big theme throughout the ages, right. and that's probably true around the world. Um, the idea that the gods are angry at you, and so they they punish you. But then there's kind of the side of compensation as well. Um, the idea that the gods take away your vision and then give you, say, poetry or give you kind of a direct line to God. And then there's also the issue that, like, if you pray hard enough, you will be able to see, right? And maybe that might be a metaphorical seeing, as in this very, you know, ubiquitous kind of amazing grace type thing, right? I once was blind and now I see, which is all about spiritual blindness and sight. And here's where the, the, the single story, I think, is a real problem. And this, it doesn't matter that there are oppositional forces at work, because what's really important about the danger of the single story in this instance, I think, is that blindness means something. You know, that blindness is not a lived experience, but it is somehow symbolically important. And I think that that's probably been the biggest issue that we as blind people face is that we walk down the street and we're not just people living our lives. We're people that are like laden with metaphor you know? And so the, the characters that we meet, it's like, we're we're meant to symbolize something in the literature or even in the TV shows, right? When a character gets struck blind, it's for various. Yeah. Like with, I find within the, within the religious category, it's extra difficult because you can't, you know, it's hard to argue with like in religion, if you cannot see quote the light, Mm -hmm. you have no chance of at redemption, right? Yes. You know, if you cannot uh, experience the light, right? Yeah. So where does that leave you in within that framework, within the uh, 
religious framework as a blind person. Yeah. And I think that that speaks to sort of these larger things that we're sort of pigeonholed into, right? That dark is bad and light is good, right? And so blindness is bad, sight is good. You know, there's sort of all these binary structures that kind of uphold this idea that blindness is a bad place to be and by by any means necessary get out right by either cure or religious cure or how, however it might it might be i will say too the other interesting thing i have a little anecdote and this is kind of fun because it's a it's a canadian friend um who mentioned to me that i, I mentioned in the book who said you know people say to her things like Oh, well, you must not have to worry about sinning because you're blind. So you can't sin if you're blind, right? And she's like, wait a minute, like I struggle. I struggle with All my right, Christian, I like that. Christianity as well, you know. But it's but that speaks to that whole virginal thing, right? That's another sort of right. story in the, the the sort of the suitcase of tropes, right? That the idea that you're sort of a virginal blind person, right? You, you don't have sex, you don't have babies, you don't, you don't get married, right? Because you're sort of angelically pure or something, which we're not. P.S. To anybody who's wondering, <laughs> given that part of this audience would be people who are plumb from this community. What do we tell them about how to change that story mm. if they think, you know, I'm, I really feel like I'm part of this story. Like this story has followed me all my life. And to quote a movie, uh, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. What do you, what do you tell people about changing that story and how to change it? Well, you know, the other part of the, the single story is that it seems to me that every few years there's sort of a blind person that's kind of held up above the rest, right? And this is what we mm-hmm. tend to call inspiration porn, right? Thanks to the, yeah. the great um, Australian uh, disabled activist, Sally Young, right? So we, we have this term and we sort of all know it, right? We see it, we, mm-hmm. we, we, I should say we hear it, we wince at it, right? This sort of this inspirational story that doesn't really speak to us. It tends to speak to the sighted, world out there. And I think the best way that we can unravel it is doing exactly what we're doing and what you're doing in your podcast, Mm -hmm. which is helping each other out, right? Creating blind community, thinking about creating works of art, works of literature that are that are interesting for us, right? And and not worrying all the time about whether it's accepted by the sighted community. Um, you know, John Lee Clark is an amazing deafblind poet and memoirist. He, he just has a book come came out this uh, this month um, called How to Communicate. And he talks a lot about this, about the idea that he's going to create things that are first interesting and vital to his community, the deafblind community. And if the the hearing sighted world wants to be let in because what he's doing is really amazing, then by all means, you know, come to us on our terms. Because I feel like so many of the books that the sighted world reads are things that are sort of palatable to their understanding of what blindness is already, right? And so usually it's like a singular figure is kind of held up for a few years and it creates a kind of a a competition, I think, between our voices. Whereas I really want us to have more community and that has a lot to do, I think, also with blind pride, right? With the idea Mm -hmm. that we can be proud of each other, not in competition for that little slice of the pie that the sighted mainstream world is going to let us have. What's next on your... uh 
in your uh, academic life or in your uh, creative life? I've got a new book project that is also um, kind of more essays. There are essays that are inspired by anonymous blind people in sort of iconic photographs. Um, so that's a little bit more in line with, with their plant eyes. My, I should say that my novel is very much sort of, I hope, I hope it will be very mainstream, um, kind of, uh, a rollicking, uh, futuristic kind of a ride. So in, in your, um, in your photographic, uh, project do you do you have that iconic photo from paul strand that is my first that is my first essay that is my first essay yep and just for people that don't know it's at 19 it's from 1916 it's this iconic photograph of a of a blind woman on the streets of new york city and she's got a big sign that says blind and um and it's one of these photos that's so famous that i can pretty much mention it to any sighted person who's got even the slightest bit of an artistic bent and they know this photo. And the reason why it was called to my attention is because my friend um, works at the New York Public Library and they had it on, they have like these periodic exhibits and it's like treasures of the New York Public Library, you know. And he said that in the blurb, they basically don't mention her at all. Like the actual subject of the photo Mm. is pretty much not mentioned everything that's Hmm. talked about is strand the photographer right and i and so um and how he did it and he used a prism camera and blah 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 and so um it's that erasure right and here's Mm -hmm. we we get back to the problem of the single story in this case the story is all the photographers and not the subject um Mm -hmm. not the actual and then what do you have well you have pornography basically right because you're holding up uh, one kind of person for the gratification of another kind of person and and that kind of person right us blind people that are actually represented don't even have access to it yeah i know and when i was examining that photo and talking about it i basically had a discussion with this anonymous woman like mm. do, did you know that you've you know you that you're held up as this iconic photograph you know this iconic uh symbol of blindness from that era i mean in the picture there's a, a brick wall behind her like yeah. it's a very dark picture very it's dark. a very dark photo i mean it, it, there's no hope or anything in it it's a very i wonder if we can of, find out who she is or was i tried i tell you what that's yeah. actually part of my essay um yes i tried because she actually has a peddler license so it turns out she was yes. she's a newspaper peddler and so there was a peddler license number and i was like oh my god like i might be able to match this to a name well i tell you what i i came up against a brick wall um both in the new york public library and then i also went to the municipal um you know sort of library here in new york and they all said no we cannot it doesn't seem like those licenses like they just destroyed them after a few years yeah no i i couldn't find any details about that and all all the beggars and if you were a beggar on the streets of new york you had to have a license back then you couldn't just be you know wander out there and put your tin cup out there and ask for money but of course everyone had peddler she was a peddler, not yes. a beggar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But I wonder, so there were uh, beggar licenses too? Yes. Ah, yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, no, it was, I found, yeah, it was a really interesting journey to research, you know, like as you did, sort of my blindness history and understand a little bit more about what has shaped my life, you know, rather than just being frustrated, you yes. know, in terms of some 
aspect of trying to live with blindness, I understand a lot more now about how those attitudes were shaped. And even my own mother's, you know, attitude that mm. I would live, live in an institution, oh, you know, goodness. and, and uh, you know, she came to Canada after, uh, after the Second World War into a town in, in Western Canada, where they just erected a brand new residence for the blind and had a big opening for it. Uh. And and so that was her first impression of where blind people live. And then years later, she has a blind daughter, right? Mm. And that that's sort of what came to her mind is, oh, she'll live in a place like that, right? Something in what you said made me think of this is like the urge to look as sighted as possible, right? Mm -hmm. I think that that's also a danger in sort of having, and I do I can't believe we didn't even talk about this word yet, but having an ocular-centric perspective, right? To believe right. that sightedness is better than blindness, which means, okay, if you are blind, what you want to do is look as little blind as you possibly can, right? And so we reward, we have historically, I think, rewarded, you know, people in our community that are, well, less blind or sort of more heroic, right? We tend to love those stories of like the mountain climbers and the, the people that do the things that sort of seem the most impossible as a blind person, as opposed to celebrating the things that like we're really good at, you know? And, you know, it makes it so hard for us to be good at being a blind person when we're constantly celebrating, you know, looking sighted. Yeah, hard to measure up. That's that kind of inspiration porn that you're talking about. Yeah, so, you sure. know, if you're not climbing mountains or you're not, I don't know, performing music that people yeah. all over the world are hearing, then, you know, who are you? What are you actually doing with your life? Yeah, then you are really pitiful. Yes. Well, I think, you know, I'm going to I'm going to actually end and I'll get you to react, react to this as well by quoting my friend Hannah here, ah, if oh I dear. may, Hannah. Uh, because when we've talked about the danger of the single story, Hannah, you've said it's not the danger of the single story that's the problem. It's believing the single story ah. that's the problem. About us believing it, not us even believing. the sighted people. But them too. We'll include those sighted people too. Uh, that if they believe it, that's yeah. also a problem. Yes, because we've we've come up with all kinds of stories, and I think that is such a, a good point. And that's all about internalized ableism, right? Internalized ocular centrism. I think is is we're buying into those those myths. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, uh, Leona. It's been fascinating talking to you, and it's as been I said, a we could pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, so what I was kind of captivated by was um, the fact that, um, as a, you know, we don't, there's all kinds of reasons we can talk about why we were left out of the story, but it seems now is the time for us to insert ourselves back in, and in a, I don't know how to put it, like in as, I think we need to be assertive as, as we possibly can be, you know, when she was talking about blind pride and all of that, is now is the time for us to tell us uh, our own stories and insert ourselves in and say, hey, wait a minute, all these stories that have been told about us, they're not mine and they're not ours. They're someone else's. You know, like we've done, we've spent a hundred years of doing advocacy. Uh, we're tired of it now, right? So let's get with the program, right? You know? Yeah. And, something. And, but, yeah. Well, I mean, telling our story is a kind of advocacy that it'll turn yes. out to be a kind of advocacy anyway. Right. David, what do you think of what you heard? Well, it's a great discussion, but I think the uh, the danger of a single story is when the story is taken out of context, and I I think that is 
too easily done in today where people are so quick at just picking up bits and pieces of information, not really looking very deeply. But the um, single story I see is has a direct relationship with independence because the more we gain independence, the more we get to tell our story, the more we become involved. But the challenge is that although for the most part here in Canada, we have a great deal of independence due to technology, there are still many parts of Canada and other parts of the world where people do not have that level of independence and their single story still lingers on in the the old narrative. I, I think that's an excellent point, David, and something that we haven't even started to look at as a team, uh, talking about the single story. And, and we've been talking about the st- single story of Canada and the single story that we've inherited. But as you say, there's all kinds of other stories going on out there which uh, we should probably be looking at. Thanks for listening. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of Alliant, A-L-L-Y-A-N-T, and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians, A-E-B-C. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio, Jacob Shemansky is the technical producer, and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And finally, thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to Triple Vision with questions or comments, you can email us at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21. We see a higher unemployment rate for disabled individuals. Take a deep dive into the issues impacting the disability community. Consent, when you're complexly disabled, goes a lot deeper. It's not just yes or no, like we're so used to understanding it. It's sighted people who are making assumptions about blindness, and that is what is informing the cultural perception of blindness. The Pulse. Download from your favorite podcasting platform and subscribe on YouTube.